Welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast. Conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now, here are your hosts, Ed Stetzer and Daniel Yang. Welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping Christian leaders navigate and lead through the cultural issues of our day. My name is Daniel Yang, the director of the Church Multiplication Institute. And today we're talking to Jen Wilkin and Dr. J.T. English. Jen's a Bible teacher from Dallas, Texas, and the author of multiple Bible studies and books, including 10 Words to Live By, Delighting in and Doing What God Commands, and Women of the Word, How to Study the Bible with Both Our Hearts and Our Minds. JT is a professor and the lead pastor of Storyline Fellowship Church in Arvada, Colorado. He's also a co-founder of Training the Church and co-host of Knowing Faith Podcasts. He's the author of Deep Discipleship, How the Church Can Make Whole Disciples of Jesus. And Jen and JT's new book is You Are a Theologian, an Invitation to Know and Love God Well. But before we talk to Jen and JT, we want to remind you that if you're enjoying our interviews, it would help us if you left us a review, especially if you're a Spotify listener. Now let's go to Ed Stetzer, Editor-in-Chief of Outreach Magazine and the Dean of the Talbot School of Theology. Hey, super good to be again on a podcast with you. Let me just tell you too, we've seen a, a great increase in the number of people listening. So, and we think sharing is a key part of that as well. So please take time to do so. And we're going to kind of jump into a conversation that, you know, for pastors and church leaders, you know, I work at an academic institution. And so when we talk about a theologian, um, I actually like, I'm, I'm actually recording from the faculty lounge at the Talbot School of Theology. When you walk down the hall, that's where theologians are. It's, it's actually an mm-hmm. academic discipline to uh, a lot of people. So sometimes people will say, well, Ed, you're a theologian. I say, well, I'm a missiologist. But what we're talking about here, well, let, let's jump right in. in. In the book, you're right. This book exists to serve the part of the Great Commission a generation of church leaders forgot. We're at the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast. Jen, what did you mean by that? And what would you like us to know about the purpose of the book? Well, when we look at the Great Commission, we often think of it in terms of evangelism, and we absolutely should. But the way that we think about its words are going to matter for the way we think about just spiritual formation. And when you think about the Great Commission, it says, go and make disciples. We all know that part, uh, uh, teaching them to observe all that he has commanded. And I think that's the the part that gets lost is the teaching others to observe everything that Jesus commanded. And um, so when you think about um, the statistics that we're seeing that are coming out around the theological understanding of the average evangelical, it would, it would seem that we have actually not taught others to observe all that Jesus commanded. We're starting to see some alarming things come out, things like 48% of evangelicals agree that everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God, or 65% of evangelicals agree that God accepts the worship of all religions. And so um, when we think about passing on the good deposit from one generation to the next, I think it's time for us to, to ask the question, have we perhaps to borrow an idea from Dallas Willard, been so focused on making converts that we have forgotten to make disciples. Yeah. So I, of course, will always say I want to be focused on making converts. And you are, too, as you said at the very yeah. beginning, that that really does matter. You, the, the stats you quoted from, of course, are from the Ligonier uh, Lifeway Research Study on Theology that yeah. I had the privilege of helping, actually helping create in 2016. And we, we launched it. And it's been in every few years. And what's interesting about the study, you were quoting the most recent one, What's well, it's getting worse. So yes. since 2016, theological illiteracy is on the rise. Theological awareness is on the decline. And you do make the case. I mean, again, just to remind everyone, the title of the book is You Are a Theologian, An Invitation to Know 
and love God well. You know, I'm just we're, we're Eric Geiger, both, you know, Eric Geiger, all of us know Eric Geiger. Mm-hmm. We're actually launching a series at church um, at the time of this recording tonight uh, called Deep Dive. We're taking people through systematic mm-hmm. theology and going through nine weeks of major, you know, Christology and soteriology. And, and people seem interested in the topic. But as a percentage of our congregation, it's it's not 50% who are interested. There's a niche of that. But but you're saying you. So there's a call to for church leaders to find a broad swath of people who want to go deeper in theology. How do we make the case to them that you, using your book title, Jen, you are a theologian? Well, I think it's by uh, helping them to recognize that when we talk about theology, really what we're inviting them into is asking and answering the questions that everybody asks and answers, uh, mm-hmm. really basic questions about how to understand the world around us. Um, who is God? Um, what is he like? Uh, Who are we? What does it mean to be human? What's our purpose for being here? Um, Questions that every human has to grapple with and that every human does ask and answer in a particular way. And we want to show believers that they need to ask and answer those questions in a way that is distinctly Christian. And I do think that there is is an interest for this in the pews. I think that um, sometimes it has to be awakened because no one has invited them into the conversation, perhaps. But what we have seen, what JT and I have both seen in the church that we serve in and beyond is that when people are introduced to these theological categories, uh, they come alive. It's almost like watering a plant that was waiting to be watered. People are hungry to have a thoughtful approach to their faith. They are hungry for faith to be more than a feeling. They want faith to be something that has some shock absorbers to it when the hard questions of life present. And I think that theology gives us that. You're both in ministry, JT, uh, pastoring and professor, and and then Jen uh, as a Bible teacher. But JT, let me go to you first. How are you seeing specifically in local churches, like the lack of discipleship? Yeah, I mean, I think we could point to the stats that we just talked about from the Ligonier and Lifeway study, but I think we could also just look to basic breakdown of the basic understanding of the faith in the lives of local churches. When I just have conversations with members at any of the churches that I've served at or at conferences, these are the questions that Jen just highlighted are questions that people do not have the answers to. And that's not just playing out in terms of can they fill out a Bible quiz or a theology quiz. It's actually playing out in their everyday lives in terms of their understanding of who they are, image bearing, the dignity and value of every single person made and created in the image of God and all of the implications that that then has for life or our basic understanding of sinfulness and our need for a savior, our need for salvation. And so I think we could point to stats, which we rightly should. We could also just point to where our churches are basically right now. And we can see that the the lack of theology and the lack of deep discipleship in local churches is being replaced by something else. The vacuum that is being left open is being replaced by different ideologies, whether they be political or sociological. And every single pastor and every single church is facing this on some level. Yeah, I think one of the things that we've seen in the last few years is that people are being discipled by their cable news choices and spiritually right. shaped by their social media. <laughs> Cause of concern for all of us. But you, you again, um, you keep using that word. So you got, we got so this theologian word. So how mm-hmm. do we, to you, JT, how do we describe and define? Because again, that's a key part of the book. You're a theologian. How do you describe and define what a theologian is if everybody should be one? Yeah, one of the one of the uh, that you kind of started with that is I used to think the theologians were either the pastors, the ministers, the missionaries, or the academics. I showed up for my first class at seminary, and the professor helped me understand that it wasn't just that he was a theologian, but that I was too. And he did it by basically defining the word. The word theologian or theology is really two Greek words put together: theos 
and Lagos. And those are the words for God and either the study of or words about. And he helped me understand in that class. And I've really just kind of uh, grabbed onto this idea that if Theos and Lagos or words about God is the definition of theology, then there is not a person living that isn't a theologian. So we want to be really clear. We're not just saying evangelicals should be better theologians or Christians should be better theologians. We're saying that a, a an atheist is a theologian because they have words about God. Uh, we're saying that a kind of a postmodern secularist is a theologian because they have certain beliefs about God and it's no or I don't know. And so the question isn't, are you a theologian? Because everybody has words about God. The question is, are you a good theologian? Hmm. Jen, you're you're a Bible teacher, and uh, a lot of our listeners, I mean, you're both uh, Bible teachers and uh, pastoring uh, JT there in Arvada. And most of our listeners are either uh, pastors, preachers, uh, communicators, church leaders. And sometimes there's a disconnect between giving content and then also helping people to do the work of theology. And so, Jen, I'll go to you first. Like, as you're teaching the Bible, how do you make it more than just content? Like, how do you help them to do actually do the work of a theologian? Yeah, and that's a really important question to address, and it's something that JT and I have been talking about and thinking about for a number of years now. Um, the common experience of most people when they think about coming to church and being discipled, they think about sitting and receiving passively from someone who is on a platform. And so what has developed over the last 30 or 40 years has been what we would call the expert amateur divide. The expert stands on the platform and delivers expert content to the amateur who sits in the pews. And what we're very committed to is um, restoring to the life of the church what we call act dedicated learning environments. They're active because they are following the principle that Howard Hendricks articulates so well of never do for your student what your student can do for themselves. So in other words, it's not me telling you what to believe. It's me helping give you tools so that you become a better thinker, whether I'm there sitting there with you or not. Um, but then additionally, what we're doing is, is inviting them into dialogue. Um, there's an opportunity to have a back and forth. It's not simply someone standing in front of you and telling you. It is a conversation. And we believe firmly that all theological discourse should happen uh, in community. Uh, specifically, we like to see it happen in the local church. Uh, unfortunately, when you think about a small group setting in the local church, the predominant use of a small group over the last 30 or 40 years has been for the for the explicit purpose of building community. Um, and there's nothing wrong with having spaces where community is our explicit purpose uh, for gathering. But I think what the problem is that we've seen is that almost every space where we gather in the church has had the highest stated goal of building community. And so uh, when you restore the idea of a dedicated learning environment, that second part of the statement, active dedicated learning environment, it means that you start to build environments in the local church whose highest stated goal is learning. Um, and that's a dialogic learning. As I just said, it's one where people are being invited into the process and they're being equipped with tools for how to think, not just merely being told what to think. Okay. Of course, the book is You Are a Theologian. And I guess the my question would be, what is malformed? What is what goes badly when we don't see ourselves as theologians? And how does that impact our lives? We'll go to you on that, JT. Yeah, I mean, I think the re the reality is is when you don't see yourself as a theologian, that's when you're most susceptible to having a bad theology because you're answering the questions that Jen already highlighted. You are are filling in gaps of the questions around who is God, 
and what is God like and who am I and what's gone wrong with the world and how or is God even make intending to make things right? You have answers to those questions, whether you realize it or not. And so let's just use one example. One way that this can go really badly is around that question of who are we? What does it mean to be a person? If we don't have a biblically shaped understanding or worldview of, <clears throat> of who a person is and that they're created in the image of God and that there's no, uh, whether they're created male or female, young or old, rich or poor, educational status or socioeconomic status, they have dignity, value, and worth because they are image bearers of God. That's what the Bible teaches us. What if we answered that question differently with a different worldview or a different uh, form of, quote unquote, a revelation from God that actually we should make distinguishing uh, features between humans? We should separate them into classes. We should uh, change the way we think about men or women. We should change the way we think about uh, 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 ethnicity. That is that's how people are answering that question wrongly is currently creating some of the biggest challenges that we face in our world right now. So again, this isn't just you end up getting something wrong on the theology test if you take it. It's that you're actually living your life improperly in accordance to God's revelation, how he's revealed himself. Okay, so I I, 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 mean, I completely resonate with you. I, I want people to think this way. Um, I would say that they're in church life. I think of Donna and me. Donna's Donna's my wife, amazing wife and amazing person. Um, so she, like I'd say, I want to be a theologian. I want to study theology more. She wants to read the Bible and love Jesus more. So right. how would, and she's way more godly than me, and she spends way more time in the scripture, but she doesn't categorically see herself because she thinks of theologians as people who understand doctrines. She wants to know Jesus, which I would say to her is filled with understanding doctrines. But how would I make that case? Let's go to you, Jen. Well, uh, I think that what we get from the study of theology is good categories for reading the Bible. Uh, we can't assume that just because we're willing to sit down and read it, that we are in a space to understand it the way that we should. Um, we have 2,000 years worth of of dialogue partners on this. We have all of these important contributions that have been made to saying, oh, if we were going to organize what the Bible is saying as a whole, here are the categories that we would place things into. And those categories are helpful lenses for how we understand the scriptures. You know, there's that um, idea that's often talked about of keeping the plain things, the main things when you're reading the scriptures. But unfortunately, not all of us are that skilled at understanding what is plain when we read the scriptures and what what basic doctrine is giving us is the plain things. And those are anchors for us as we go to the Bible. And so I've heard the interaction between um, studying the Bible and studying theology described as a virtuous circle. One enforces the other and the other enforces the one. Uh, we have no reason to choose one over the other or to say that one is better than the other. They're actually helping each other to um, bring us into life and godliness as we were intended to be. Hmm. JT, as a as a local church pastor, you know somebody who who leads um, as a essence essence uh, lead pastor or senior pastor. Yeah, I know you see part of your job as somebody who's guarding the doctrine of the church. So two questions. How, how do you not make yourself the bottleneck for other people's ability to, to do theology and be a the, theologian? And then secondly, how would you uh, lead uh, your leaders uh, who want to be theologians, but they're thinking, maybe I need to go to seminary, maybe I need to uh, you know, read John Calvin? Like, How would you approach that? 
Yeah. I mean, the, the, the two kind of propositions that you're putting before, before us are the challenges that Jen, Jen and I have both faced over the last eight years, whether it was leading at our previous church or the context that I am now is first, it's getting to pe- getting people to understand uh, that they are theologians. And one of the biggest challenges that people face is not just that they don't think they're theologians. It's that they are terrified to be wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, if I begin this process and I'm wrong about something, then maybe I'm a heretic. Maybe God does like there's, there's this real fear. And so part of what, what pastors and leaders can do is create a culture of charity around theological dialogue. And that includes the lead pastor saying, or not, not, not even when I was a lead pastor, but when I was just a discipleship pastor saying things like, I don't know if I know the answer to that question. Can we go find that together? And maybe maybe we could read a book together or study a, a passage of scripture together. And that kind of culture can really foster theological dialogue because sometimes theological environments or learning environments can create a culture of fear or I'm there to perform, to show what I already know rather than learn what I don't know. And, and the leaders of those environments are the ones who are responsible of creating a culture of charity. I'd also just encourage pastors because uh, I, one of the other questions that I get pretty regularly around this is my people either don't care about this stuff or they they uh, they think they already know this stuff. And that culture helps create and foster that kind of environment. But pastors, I want to encourage you as you begin stepping into these conversations, whether it's uh, Ed and Eric at his church or whether you're a bivocational pastor and you're just thinking about how do I begin teaching this as, you know, I've got this other job and all I can't do an active learning environment. I've just got sermons. I, the number one piece of feedback that Jen and I get when we teach this stuff is I have been in church for 20 years and nobody has told me this. Mm-hmm. I, for example, just last Sunday, uh, I'm teaching through a form of what we wrote in the book, I'm not teaching the book, but just the basic categories. And I taught on Trinitarianism and I had an 86 year old woman, Maxine, mm-hmm. come up to me and say, I, I've been a Christian for as long as I can remember. And nobody has explained the doctrine of the Trinity that clearly to me, showed me its implications and allowed me and invited me into the divine life. And guys, it wasn't because it was good teaching, I can assure you. It was because it was just basic Christian orthodoxy delivered in a in a, a palatable manner to a Christian who is now delighting in God in deeper ways. Yeah, we're uh, when we do our series, we're going to do a thing on the Trinity, and I'm going to explain the Trinity is like water. Sometimes it's frozen. <laughs> sometimes it's I've never heard that liquid. That one. It's a gaseous. That's thing. so helpful. That's modalism, Patrick. Anyway, Patrick. Uh, yeah, we won't do that. Uh, but but it is funny how so many people, uh, like I actually saw a prominent pastor who did this that explanation, and I mean a prominent pastor, mm-hmm. and I, I just sent a, a hopefully a loving note saying I, I know you're trying to do it's not not helping. <laughs> but uh, but here's the thing. The and and if I could, and again, Jen, I want to ask you this question. So and I hope it's okay to ask this question. But I was again, the book is Are you a you are a theologian, an invitation to know and love God well. So I now live in Southern California, where I'm suffering for the Lord in sunshine. <laughs> um, but and I, I went to dinner here five, six years ago with Christine and Nick Kane, who's a prominent speaker on the women's ministry circuit. And what she said to me is, I think she used the word bereft. She said, you know, Ed, just the, the world of the women's speaking ministry is just kind of bereft, or maybe I heard bereft, um, of, <laughs> of theology. And so we talked, and she started, and she came with to, to, to do her degree. To, to, mm-hmm. You just want to go to seminary? We, we launched a master's degree program. I, I remember, you know, just talking to her during her systematic theology class and, and other things. And so, uh, but come back to what she said. You know, I'm so thankful, you know, I mean, Chris is, is uh, you know, graduated from our program at Wheaton. And we'll be starting similar things here at, at Talbot. But so I guess my question is, I mean, 
do, do women, is there, is there a different approach you take to women who may necessarily, you know, in women's ministry spaces, that's, that's not something that's as theologically driven? Or was that just a unique experience that Chris expressed? No, it's not a unique experience at all. I mean, the, I've, I've, uh, I call it uh, affectionately the pink ghetto. Um, it is where, wow. um, you know, women have gathered for, you know, the last 30 or 40 years and been resourced almost entirely at the feelings level. Um, they have been told that the way that they are spiritually formed is through devotional reading of the scriptures. And I think we all know that while devotional reading is wonderful, it is a limited space to approach the Bible from because you're not going to spend time in Leviticus if you're reading the Bible devotionally. You know, you're only going to spend time in portions of the scriptures that elicit. Uh, at a positive emotion uh, as you're as you're reading. And so uh, women have also been more or less told that they should bring their feelings to church. That's what their role is. And not only that, that in many cases, they almost entirely equate faith with being a feeling. And so, so much of what I have tried to do and others have tried to do is to remind women that the call to love God with their minds is every bit as incumbent on them as it is for men. But if you take a look at the academy, the people who are the vocational theologians, you will find that on the whole, those are males. Uh, it's men predominantly who are attending seminary. Now the numbers have changed somewhat over the last, you know, couple of decades. But if you look just back historically, it's men. And then lay on top of that the fact that there has been assigned a risk category to men interacting with women who are not their wives in the church. And what happens is we have a widening gap between theological education and female spaces. And so, yes, I would say that women's spaces have been bereft of theology. And some of that is because of the mechanics of the local church. Um, the pink ghetto often operates uh, under a benign neglect where uh, the pastor who is overseeing it is not really sure what should happen in there. Uh, he also might perceive women as predominantly feelers and not thinkers. And so there isn't a lot of theological input that is going into that space or evaluation that's happening around the resources that are being used by the women. Um, I hate that so much. And it's one of the things that's been so great about um, JT and I crossing paths in ministry is that we have developed a, a true partnership that has has, uh, that has been of help, not just in all female spaces for me, but also um, in the local church of finding spaces where men and women are learning theology side by side in brother sisterly uh, cooperation. Uh, in other words, it's as JT will sometimes say, it, it's the democratization of the theological process, and and it's different than in a, the, in a in a in a seminary setting from the standpoint that in the local church it's not seen as a competitive space, and so uh, it's seen as a place where we're all going forward together and learning uh, learning together. And so that changes the dynamics for a woman in particular who might be afraid to even set foot into that space uh, when she understands, no, it's not like uh, one-upsmanship. It's actually all of us in conversation together moving forward in our understanding. You know, I wish you had given some thought to that before you actually <laughs> Your, your answer. Well, no, I mean, I think it's 100%. It's 100%. So, so help our pastors and church leaders, that's our audience. How do they then persuade people to take on the role of a theologian? They, you know, where you're both in, in this kind of leadership ministry. How do you persuade them? I mean, and let me just say, we want to give them, you are a theologian, but but what's the, what's the, there's got to be steps, there's got to be process, there's got to be ways to persuade, because they don't think that way. People, not to, men and women just don't think that way. Uh, let me, let me throw first to Jen and then JT, you just jump right in right after. 
Well, for, for me, it was invitational. I just needed someone to ask. You wow. know, I was over there. I knew as someone teaching the Bible uh, that I needed to have a theological understanding and I didn't know where to go to get it. And so I'm sitting there, you know, with this really thick uh, Louis Burkhoff systematic theology. It's, it's behind me on my shelf right now, uh, trying to mind my way through all of these topics. Would, would not have been my first choice, but but OK. <laughs> Maybe oh, you are don't. a theologian. Could let's be your, not, your let's not fight. Oh, yeah. No. And so that's one of the reasons that JT and I wrote the book is because, um, you know, I, I was going to push through. I had an English degree. I at least had some chops around reading those kinds of books, but um, I don't expect that everybody else would necessarily. And then I had my husband as a good dialogue partner, but those, those two things came together for me and kept me going. Not everybody has that. Uh, mm -hmm. We should have access points to theological discourse. And that's what we're able to give people in the local church. But I'm telling you, if someone had said to me, Hey, let's sit down and talk about this. When I was 29 years old and trying to teach the Bible without you know, um, following, falling under the more strictly being judged that we hear about in James chapter three, I would have given time and effort and energy to that immediately. And in many cases, we've never asked this question of the people who are sitting in the pews. Jen and I wrote the book that we wish we would have had yeah. uh, 20 years ago or 30 years ago. I became a Christian through Campus Crusade. And, and my first question was, how do I grow? How do I learn mm -hmm. my Bible? And somebody handed me a different introduction to systematic theology, the one by Wayne Grudem. And whatever you think of that book is fine, but it's 400 pages. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> that's not an introduction for anything. That's a, that's an advantage textbook. I wanted the, you know, the how-to basics of the faith. And Jen and I run a cohort through a ministry called Training the Church. And <clears throat> getting to get into your question, Ed, the, the most common thing is that we realize in these churches, we do not have to create a demand. There is pent up demand that mm -hmm. most often leaders are not recognizing. Mm -hmm. Jen and I have not had to work a process that's what's the marketing scheme and how do we get people interested and how do we tell them they need this? It's we finally say, hey, we know that you need this and have been asking for this. And more often than not, the floodgates open and mm -hmm. people begin streaming into these environments saying, I've been asking for this for 10, 15 years. And finally, you guys are realizing the demand that we've, that we've had. Yeah, well, you, that's so good. And I, I know that you are, you're not saying this, but I, I'm going to describe a situation and I'd love for you to comment on, because this is a well-worn path uh, of some young person uh, getting a hold of uh, an old dead guy writing on something <laughs> in the Bible. And then 15, 20 years later, they become a quote unquote Theobro, uh, you know, meaning <laughs> Theobros for the win, meaning they're policing somebody um, and they may or may not be a church leader. How do you avoid developing those kinds of theologians? Maybe to, to JT and then back to Jen. Yeah, I mean, we, we've, of course, been one, this has been one of our concerns anytime we've created an active learning environment in our churches or have helped others. And so, again, a big part of this is culture. And we, we put it in the subtitle here is this is an invitation to know and love. If the opposite mm -hmm. side of the Great Commission is the Great Commandment, that all the goal of theology is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as yourself. So we'll often say things like, if your theology is leading you to boastfulness or pride, throw it away because it's mm -hmm. a bad theology. All theology should lead not to not to a, a greater sense of loftiness but lowliness it's it, it theology is best done on our knees or on our faces seeking god in humility and teaching others to do the same and so leaders in churches if you're seeing kind of a theo bro culture arise in your church that's not a good theology you need to correct those brothers because this never leads to to greater uh, pride but to greater humility
Jen, I, I love your thoughts too, specifically around being a, a woman theologian, because I know there is a crowd in which they push back against that. So what are your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, I've had my own uh, experiences with the Theobros. In fact, when I first started writing for the Gospel Coalition, uh, you know, about 10 years ago, they still had the comments section open when you would they would post something. And it was like every first year seminarian went out there to take a pot shot at what I had said. And um, and so I think about that. I think about the way in particular that um, I have been interacted with as as a woman. And it occurs to me that um, that there are very few men in ministry who know a woman who they would consider their theological and intellectual equal and even fewer who know a woman who they would consider their theological and intellectual superior. And so I do think that uh, it's important that in the local church, we are developing these brother sisterly environments where both men and women are studying side by side and learning side by side so that maybe we'd have a generation of male theologians in the local church who have no concept of doing theology in in, in only a single gender space where they're only around other, other men. Um, I think there would be more charity in the conversation. And I also have thought, you know, about how, um, the number of doors that were closed to me in, 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 in my opportunities to grow in my theological understanding have all been open doors for the men who are most likely to take a shot at me. Uh, and I don't think that that's always factored in uh, to their responses. But, you know, there's also a lot of subtext in those conversations that we don't have time to get into here. Yeah. Well, if, if you were to survey the landscape of evangelical theology in America today, we'll kind of just narrow it down. Um, where do you feel like, which areas in theology do you feel like we're most anemic or we're lacking in terms of deep understanding? Uh, JT, you and then Jen? Yeah, I, I would say too. I think the first, if, if I were thinking about going back to seminary and either writing a dissertation or thinking about what do evangelicals need to be thinking about, if we could have like a 325 Council of Nicaea again, what what topic? Uh, it's one that I've already mentioned, image bearing, the doctrine mm -hmm. of what it means to be a human being. That relates to conversations around gender, ethnicity, uh, uh, the race conversation, but it also is going to relate to artificial intelligence. And we, as we think about some of the coming challenges that the church is going to face and questions uh, that, that churches are going to have to answer, I would say the doctrine of what it means to be a human being created in the image of God is going to be the issue for the next hundred years. I would also just say practically something that I've experienced moving from maybe more of kind of a, a evangelical subculture in, in Texas, uh, now <clears throat> up in Colorado, is the doctrine of ecclesiology is foreign in some missiological environments. And I'm not talking about like hardcore ecclesiology. I'm just saying the very basics understanding of what a church is, treating the church as the family of God, not as a conference to attend. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really working hard to help the people uh, in my context understand the basics of, of what it means to be a member of a local church. Yeah, I would say you could throw a rock and hit a doctrine we need to talk about, but the two mm -hmm. that I would probably choose um, would be image bearing, as JT has already talked about. And I'm thinking about it more um, from the perspective, all of the things he said are, are very, very important and top of mind. But um, I'm also thinking in terms of um, the uh, whole life pro-life ethic. Um, so in other words, uh, especially as it pertains to aging, I think we've spent a lot of time talking about it as it relates to unborn, uh, but we haven't necessarily talked about it enough with end of life issues. In fact, um, just yesterday, I had a woman um, share with me that she felt that it would be that euthanasia was okay, as long as you're a Christian, because you would go to be with the Lord. Well, 
you know, that that's saying something about what we think about image bearing. And it's and that's an important uh, miss there. There's a there's an important fundamental idea that is missing there about the sanctity of human life from womb to tomb. Uh, not only that, but the way that we're going to interact with the elderly, if they're no longer contributing in, in the ways that we measure contribution, will be heavily shaped by whether we understand them as image bearers who have every much as every bit as much value and dignity as the newborn or the unborn. So that's one that I think about a lot. Um, but then, of course, I'm always going to go back to the doctrine of God uh, in a time when uh, we are just starved for transcendence. And nothing has transformed, in my experience, people's understanding of the significance of their relationship with God than having a, a fuller and deeper understanding of his transcendence. Yeah. Amen. So good. A, a great way to close maybe our conversation today is Last question. I'd love for you to challenge pastors and church leaders around that. What is it about a, dev a devotional aspect to theology that you really want to encourage pastors and church leaders in? Um, JT, you and then Jen will give you the last word. Yeah, I don't know if I have a, a ton of thoughts, but maybe just a simple thought here. I remember when I was first telling my church that I was going to go to seminary, a, a young lady, an, an older lady came up to me as I was a young man at the time. And she made the joke that lots of people can make about seminary. And she kind of grabbed my cheek and said, don't go lose your faith in cemetery, uh, believing that, you know, I'm going to go <laughs> learn something about God that's going to make me hate him or something like that. And, and the reality is, is we need to trust who God is. We never learn something about God that doesn't increase our devotion for the beauty and perfection and the infinite well of goodness that he is. And so as we offer people the true biblical God, the God who exists and invite people to love and know him, we are going to see renewal and revival happen in the context of the local church. I think JT's touched on an important theme that has um, sort of followed us around the whole time that we've talked about this, and that is that the life of the mind is antithetical to faith. Uh, mm -hmm. We would absolutely say that that's untrue. In fact, we would say the opposite. We would say that if you want to feel deeply about God, then you ought to be able to think deeply about God because right thinking is what fuels right feeling. And we know this to be true of other things. We know it to be true in our human relationships, certainly. Like I've, I've reflected often that we get married on very little information. You know, like I married Jeff and I had a lot of ideas about what I thought were going to be my favorite things about him. Uh, and 30 years in, I my love for him doesn't even compare to the love I had for him when we got married. It is so much deeper and wider because I know him better. And the more I've gotten to know him, the deeper my love has grown. Well, we actually come to faith on very little information. You know, we, we do. We have what we need to be transferred into the kingdom of God. But after we're transferred into the kingdom of God, it is our joy and delight to learn about the one who we have said that we are, uh, that we love. And our love for him can only increase. Unlike in your marriage, where you might find out some stuff after the fact, like that your husband snores, it's not. That's not, that is actually exactly what happened to me. Um, you know, things that you're like, oh, that's a setback in my ability to love this person. Um, with God, that's never true. There are no skeletons in his closet. And with the study of theology and having words about God, uh, the statement to know him is to love him has never been more true of anyone than it is the God of the universe. And so I actually, JT and I would both say, we, we don't separate theology from doxology. Um, theology done right is always going to lead to worship. We've been talking to Jen Wilkin and JT English. Be sure to check out their book, 
You are a theologian and invitation to know and love God well. Thanks again for listening to the Setzer Church Leaders podcast. You can find more interviews as well as other great content from ministry leaders at churchleaders.com slash podcast. And again, if you found our conversation today helpful, we'd love for you to take a few moments, leave us a review. That'll help other ministry leaders find us and benefit from our content. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in the next episode. You've been listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast. For more great interviews, as well as articles, videos, and free resources, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.